Good morning. Good morning. Uh, great to be here. Um, excited about this. Um, whenever I'm, I'm asked to preach, whenever I get a chance to preach, I get to kind of refresh and renew the way I look at certain scriptures, certain passages. And sometimes that's good, and then sometimes I find you get kind of settled in something. And when God makes you go back and go through, you find out you don't have it so settled as you thought you did. And you find yourself thinking, man, I fail a lot at this. And I really thought I was a lot better at it. This is one of those for me. And so uh, before I get going, I want to pray again, just because we handle God's truth and sometimes isn't it better to handle it well. Right? And we do that with prayer. So please, if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord Sustainer, Lord Redeemer, Friend, Comforter, Lord of all that is and is to come. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, that we have a God who cares for us, who meets us where we're at, who calls us, Not because we are worthy, but because of what we could be. Of what your intent for us has always been. Help us as we discern your word, as we open your word. Holy Spirit, direct our paths. May my words not be mine, but yours. Speak through me. May these truths be deeper than my simple words. May they echo spirit unto spirit. Illuminate our path. Lord Jesus, may they be words worthy of the life you lived, the life you gave, and the resurrection and hope of life to come for us. And may, Father, we remember constantly that you love us and care for us the most out of anyone. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus Christ's holy name, amen. Uh, Today we're going to be in 1 John. 1 John. Uh, Clear in the back, chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. And we're here in the midst of this small book, listening to John speak to us about a a pretty serious deal, Christian community and love. And it's simple, and yet at the same time, when you deal with John, he's got a very straightforward path that he likes to lead us through. What we're called to, what it looks like, why it matters in Christ. So we want to listen to that, but also we want to listen to how heavy a call it is. When we're told to love one another, that's simply said and hardly done. And that's where we're at, I think, often. Most of what God and Christ would call us to is simple, yet hard for us to do. And so often... As many of our writers have put it, it's hardly ever done. And so it is with this, love. How hard it is to love. You don't have to live in the world long to realize that people are hard to love. They come in many shapes, many sizes, as we learned in the children's lesson. But also they come in many different hues of personality and temperament. And often what one person finds likable, another person finds just irritable, right? And so we venture into this life with very different people. And then we have a place called the church where Christ calls us to gather 
together with one another. And he even says the words, it doesn't matter what that necessarily looks like as long as they love me and you serve me. And he calls us all to come together no matter how we feel about politics, how we feel about how the world needs to go, no matter how we feel about maybe even our preference of music and reading and hobbies. And he says, I don't care about those things. I want you to love me. Gather with those people and then do something. Here, John calls us to what we're supposed to do. So if you would, read along with me. First John chapter 3, starting at verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. I see three different things going on. And so we're going to take them one by one. Verse 16, laying down a life. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Now, when we read that word life, the tempting part is to say his death, right? We read the word life, but what we really think is death. He laid down his life at the cross for us. And I want to expand that out because John's thought in this whole book and then in 2 John and 3 John is such that he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't want us to concentrate just on the death. He wants us to realize that Christ was a flesh and blood person too. And he lived a life. In fact, when we read the Gospels, what do we have? Most of the Gospel is not his death and his resurrection, but his life and ministry. And so when we enter into this, let's be careful. Not to read the word life as just death, but as the totality of his life. So that leads us to a question. If he was a life, then how did he live? And if we go back to the Gospels, we see how he lived. He cared for those that no one cared for. He gathered those who no one would want to gather. And then he did miracles and healings and teaching to people who couldn't pay him back, couldn't give him anything. And the only thing they could possibly give him was their lives as they followed him. And so we come to it, this idea that here in John, it's more than a life. But not only that, but John says if he laid down his life for us, and if that's the totality of who he is, who he was, then he says, and that ought to lead us to do the same and lay down our lives for one another. And that's usually where we want to stop and really hope that John was talking about Christians back then. Because he doesn't know Christians now, does he? He doesn't know the kind of people we have to love now, does he? If he knew that, he wouldn't care. Because they're hard people to love. I'm married to my wife, and I'm sure there's days where she finds it hard to love me. I can't imagine why. But I'm sure she does. About the fourth time she's picked up a towel off the floor that I refuse to hang up. Not on purpose, but if you're a profound person, you have many thoughts in your head and a towel on a rack isn't the first thing there. No excuses though. But love means something. And here John says love means giving of a life. 
And he's specific in the sense that it's not just a life to be laid down, but a life to be lived out. And that leads to the second part. Then love is defined by what is given. We are given our whole life over to one another. And that's going to be a hard task. And let me tell you why. Because the idea of fellowship and this idea of a church is such that if we're not careful, we get the idea that here we gather on Sunday and we go out and maybe we come back on Wednesdays, maybe Sunday nights. And we love you people. We love the people we gather with. But that's really all we kind of see them. We have a small community, and so you guys see each other probably throughout the weeks too. But it becomes very tempting just to view it as this is where we have to get along. And John's saying he actually didn't even have a concept like this. The house churches at the time wouldn't have even remotely thought of it like this. This is the place where the mission goes. This is the place where we get the rejuvenating that we need to go then forth out and bring Christ to the whole world. And so, as we deal with this, the tempting part for the people that John was writing to, the thing that kind of got on them was, but do we really need to do that? Do we really need to go out and love people constantly? And John had to repeat himself. You notice this, then this word love repeats itself just in these three verses. The whole of this book, he repeats that word love 46 times. It's an important word that he wants to use. And so as he's talking about this and he's bringing us on this journey of what this means, he's actually trying to come back to this thought that says, I can have Christ and I can love him and then everybody else just can stay five or six feet away from me at all times and not touch me, please. And that's the tempting part for us is we think we can, right? We can have Christ without having others. We can have Christ without community. We can have Christ alone in our cabin, 50 miles from everyone else, and no one ever visits and no one ever comes, and we can somehow say we love one another. And John says that's not going to work. You see, that started to develop a heretical thought throughout the church of that you can really love Christ and you can really obey Him, but you really don't have to do anything in this life. Because it doesn't matter. We're all going to die. We're all going to pass away. It's not going to matter. And John's reflecting on that and saying, but if Christ lived a life and he did good things throughout his life, if, if we didn't need that, then the Gospels would be a lot shorter. They'd be three chapters. There'd be his arrest, there'd be his crucifixion, and then there'd be his resurrection. But that's not the way it is. Because his life mattered. Our life matters. How we live it. And so, you also have this reflective of, but I can never love people as much as maybe I'm supposed to. And that's valid. We won't, probably. It's hard to love people the way we're supposed to. We'll always fall short. But it's very similar to the way when we were growing up. You remember the drawings we used to do, the sculptures we used to make out of Play-Doh for our parents and people we loved? I remember that I was quite the little Rembrandt. I could make really good pictures. And my parents humbled me, and they put them on the fridge. You remember? You'd make something, and it would be fridge-worthy. It could go on the fridge. I remember that. And I thought, yes, I made it. It's on the fridge. My grandmother's house was that way. All the cousins, we would gather and we would do something of importance and it would go on the fridge. And you knew you did something well for grandma when it went on the fridge. I was proud of those. And as I got older, I remember thinking they were not good. 
The woman lied to me. She told me they were good. But they were good to her. Because just like my grandmother used to encourage us in our little doodles and and our squiggles, so God encourages us. When we do acts of service to one another, we do them unto God too. Because we love the people He loves. It's like I heard Amy Stanley say, when you love my children, that shows that you love me. And so likewise with God, when we love God's children, all of us, God loves that because he loves us. And so it is an attempt and sometimes futile and sometimes fragile and sometimes frantic. But as we grow in that love, we reflect better. The love of Christ. And in so doing, God reflects in the sense of, wow, that was a really good attempt at loving that person. You did well, considering how annoyed you were, how frustrated you were you had to do it, and that you really don't care for that person. Look at what I can do if you just start trying. And like the good father he is, he praises us, and that act of love is rewarded with his adoration of you getting it, you're finally doing it. And John says that we ought to, based on the prime example of Christ, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So to follow Christ and to lay down our lives means living out the giving nature of love because he calls us to love with our entire lives. So the second point in verse 17 How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? You see there, he's asking a question, but like a lot of parents ask questions, they don't really want an answer to. They already know the answer. And so he's asking this to remind us of where we want to be. We want to say there's always a reason why we couldn't. And John here is saying, but how could you say that someone abides in the love of God and yet has the ability but refuses to help? How could you say that? Well, circumstance and choices. He brings up two. The circumstance. The world's goods. Now, if you wanted to find the world's goods, I don't know where you'd start. When I look at the Greek word, it really didn't help me out very much. Because it turns out the Greek words for world's goods turns out to be, well, world's goods. It didn't help me. And so I'd do a little digging. I'd do a little thinking. And I think we've got some of it around us. Maybe we can relate. Let's say that the world's goods are anything that the world deems to be something that you should possess. And because you possess it, you have something that others don't. Now, it's a complicated way to say money. Time. Position, power, privilege. We live in America. You know what that means? That means there's certain things we won't ever have to deal with that other countries deal with on a daily basis. If you ran the faucet for any length of time today, you are better than the majority of the world. They had to go get their water and had to boil it had to mess with it, had to risk the worry of, is it going to kill me later on? And we just poured it out, and some of us forget it's on. 
when you're brushing your teeth, and there it just pours out. Privileged to live in a world, a country, where we could do such a foolish thing to the rest of the world. So if we have those things, money, time, power, position, privilege, and John says that that's the world's goods, that's the world's currency, but yet we can't find a way to help our brother or our sister. He says there's something wrong there. There's something wrong. And no matter what position we may think we are in, and I would grant that we all don't think we're wealthy millionaires. We all think that we've worked and we've scrimped and we've saved for what we have. God says, if you even have any of this, you are in a position where you have the world's goods. And to be free with those means to offer and rend aid when you can. Now, that also leads to choice. You see uh, in mind, the word is, who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need. Sees. Now, for those of us who may struggle with definitions or who like to be literalists, let's talk about the word sees. Sometimes we use the word see when God says something like, well, I need you to help those you see around you who need help. We take that as, okay, So what I really need to do, stay in my house with the windows shut and the blinds down, and I won't ever see anyone in need. And that's funny, and that's humorous, and sometimes maybe we do that with hitchhikers. Like, it's a dangerous game, right? I mean, there's some people that pick them up, and I think, okay, I'd rather just call if they need somebody to call, but yeah, okay. But some of us then go, oh, I don't want them to see that I saw them, because then they'll know that I saw them. Right? We kind of shy away. You ever been in a grocery store and you really didn't want to talk to somebody and you went down an aisle, you saw that they were there, the person you don't want to talk to, and you thought, I really don't need bread. I've thought about that and I thought, I really actually do need bread. And then I just grab a loaf of bread that's not the right bread. I say, mistakenly grabbed it, right? I end up back in the grocery store again. We do that sometimes. Why? Because we want to convince ourselves that it's, we didn't see them. It's excuse. And so I think what this word means, see, is not just see, physically see, but it's actually a judgment on community. It's a judgment on fellowship. John is saying see, and what he really means is, you may not know enough about the people around you, on purpose, so that you don't have to get involved in their lives. You may purposely isolate yourself from others so that you don't have to concern yourself with them. And the whole scope of John and the whole scope of the early church is such that literally they talk about how often someone was in need and everyone gave. No one was in want. Why? Because everyone gave what they had and could spare so that everyone could have what they need. And that wasn't some sort of socialist, some sort of Marxist statement. It was a statement of fact that that's what community means. Community means seeing, being present with people. Recognizing that there's a need. Recognizing that there's someone there that you know of that needs something that you have. 
or that you could procure. Think about position and power. You may not be able to provide the need, but it turns out you've got a friend or you know somebody who could. Somebody needs a pickup for the afternoon. You don't have a pickup, but guess what? You know five people who do because we live in Iowa. You think about the simple things. It's not something grand and huge. It's something small and just normal every day. Here, it also talks about need and refusal. So part of the seeing them leads to meeting a need. And part of that seeing, remember, is we actually know them. So we can actually give the need well, right? How often have you been the recipient of someone giving you something you needed and you had to be grateful, but you thought in your head the whole time, this isn't actually what I needed. But thank you anyways. So we were... People, when they find out that you're a pastor or that you uh, study theology, like to give you books. And if that's you, please take with a grain of salt what I'm about to say. But sometimes they don't ask me what kind of books I enjoy. And so they get me books. And that's thoughtful. But I hope I'm not expected to read them because sometimes they're horrible. The horrible books. I wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. I wouldn't... Well, okay, I did. I used one one time to level a desk. But that wasn't the original purpose of a book. And so I think, like, man, that's really thoughtful that you gave me that. But wouldn't it have been a better gift if you knew me better and you knew what I actually wanted to read? You ever have that? People bring you food and you're like, I don't like this food. Why'd you do this? Like... I've had those moments, sometimes with family, where they give me something and I'm like, I thank you guys a ton. And then I think, i got to eat this now. I don't want to eat this. Like, in our house, it's beef stroganoff. You make me beef stroganoff, like, I'll muscle it down, but I'm not going to grin at you while I'm doing it because I don't want to eat it. But when people give us those things, I say thank you. And I'm like, if you would have asked, I would have said, just give me the hamburger. I would have taken the hamburger. But we think about it, and we think sometimes need is, we just met the need. You needed money? There, I threw $50 at you. Now shut up and take it. And maybe the person really didn't need your money. Maybe they needed your time just to be with them. Oftentimes, we're so worried that God's going to require something of us, like money and time we don't have, and maybe some sort of horrible inconvenience to our day or our week, that we don't offer people help because we're worried about what they're going to take. And the actuality is sometimes a 10-minute conversation with someone in need leads to blessings that you didn't even know you had to give. Leads to someone being changed just in those brief encounters. Sometimes a person that you think, man, they need a lot of work in their life, they really just needed someone to listen to them. Someone to partake in this life with them. Because guess what? Life's hard. And it often stinks. And it especially stinks to go through alone. So most often the gift we give to people is our presence. Being with them. Caring for them in the way we interact with them. How you're doing is not a salutation. That is not hello, but we use it like it is. Hello, how are you doing? And we keep walking. 
be the poor fool that says, I'm not actually well, and see if the person stops walking. They won't. Well, that stinks, and they just keep walking. Think about that. (laughs) But then, fellowship. He doesn't use that word here. But when we want to talk about community, we want to talk about this, I think we need to use the word fellowship because I think it has different meaning connotations to what we're actually talking about. When you say church, you're talking about a gathering of believers, sometimes non-believers too, all in a building like this. Here's church. Fellowship is a union of people for the same purpose, I believe. So when we gather to do certain things, communion and certain things, we're gathering as a fellowship, right? Same purpose. Same point. And I think fellowship also has the idea of knowing one another. You can't fellowship with people you don't know. Part of fellowshipping is getting to know one another. And so we often have things like we do communion together, but we also read the Bible together. We also do life together. These are acts of fellowship because they bring us together. They're not just to glorify Christ. They are to glorify the union that Christ has set between us, brothers and sisters. As we meet together. So, that give and take sometimes means that we're going to be on both ends of that. The giving and the taking. Now, if you're like me, you grew up in a way where you thought that takers are really moochers. And it's always better to give than to get. Am I right? It's always better to be the person giving than the person receiving. Why? Because the person receiving is, we even have a term for it, a charity case. Can you imagine a more horrific compound of words together? A charity case. And it means negative connotations. It means something bad. And all throughout the scriptures we're told to be charitable and to have charity. In fact, the King James uses that word charity a lot for self-sacrificing love. Charity. Charity, charity. It's a good thing. And even throughout scriptures, it's good to be charitable to one another. But doesn't that automatically mean then that someone's got to receive it? Someone's got to be on the other end of this love, right? But we've so built up an individualized version of this that everyone wants to be a giver and no one wants to be a receiver. And that creates a lot of problems. How can I develop a friendship and a family relation with you if you've always got to be the one that helps me out? I can never help you. I can never share a moment with you. Maybe you need to get something off your chest. Maybe you need to talk. Maybe you need someone to cry with. Maybe you need someone to pray with. But you would never go to me. Why? Because I'm the person you give stuff to. I'm not the person that you get stuff from. Right? Whenever we think about charity, we think of people less fortunate than us. What if we stop that and we start thinking about how the Bible actually talks about it and we think about it of people equal and worthy of value as us? You see, throughout scriptures, Jesus does a really good job of convincing us not only that he's the only one to give us what we actually need, but he also desires to treat us like we're worth more than we think we are. Towards the ends of the Gospels, one of the things he said is, I no longer call you servants, I'm going to call you friends. Because servants don't know the will of their masters, but friends know the heart of their friend. 
You know my heart. You know what I want you to do. Go, be my friend. Friends give and take. You think about the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair and the precious perfume. He didn't just take that because he's a king and that's what a king's worth. He took that because that's how charity is. If we want to give love all the time, we have to be a kind of people who receive love and can take it well. That's the hard part. Pride gets in the way, right? Because you don't want to be a what? Charity case. And here in the midst of verse 17, he says, but yet refuses to help. And it's kind of clear that he means people not being willing to give. But suspend for one second this idea of people not willing to give and think about what happens if the person's not willing to receive that gift. You know they need food. You know they're starving. You know their kids are starving and they won't take it. Why? Because they don't want to be a charity case. And you think, how stupid. If I needed food, I'd take it. But would we? Or would we do our level best to hide it? Hide that we're in need. Hide that we're in want of something. Just so people wouldn't think we're like those people. To know we have love is to have fellowship with others and a concern to give and a willingness to receive. This is loving Christ with our entire lives. And finally, verse 18, little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. He draws a line. And now little children, John loves to use that term. And I think that's so apt for us because we struggle so hard with the simple things. When I have to convince my daughter that when, when Obadiah, her little brother, hits her, that we don't hit him back, I've got to convince her like, like really well that that's not what we do to people, okay? Because in her head, she's already worked it out. You hit me, I hit you back, but I hit you back harder and you won't hit me back again. And so I often have to talk, not condescendingly to her, but I have to get on her level and say, I know it's hard. I know you want to, and the desire in your heart, the minute you get hit, is to clench a fist and to send it back the other way. But you can't. You can't. Because that'll never serve you later on in life. You'll be the kind of person that always wants to give it back. Not in a good way. But in pain and suffering. Because somehow we think that that's the way misery solves itself. But it isn't. That's the way misery grows. And so John, like a father, a good father, says, Little children, those who don't grasp the whole point, come, listen, listen, listen. This is the way we must be. Like a good father, he speaks to us because he sat at the foot of Jesus and had the same lesson. Listen, guys, listen. You can't treat people like this. And he says, let us love not in word or speech. Word or speech. Because it's really easy to pontificate and it's really easy to say a lot of good things and it's really hard to mean it. Read word or speech as superficial ways of doing things. Making offers to people. Oh, stipulations, avoidances, hopes. Think about that. How often do you offer something to do for somebody something? Like whatever. Well, yeah, just give me a call when you want to 
and you're really hoping they never call. Right? Because what you offered, you really offered, but you offered it as a, this is what nice people say out loud. Right? Happens all the time. I do. This is why it's so convicting, because it's so easy to fall into all of these. And you just see John thinking, that's not the way Jesus wanted it done. Or how about stipulations? I would love to help them, but there's X, Y, Z that makes makes it so I can't. They need time. Well, today I was going to mow the lawn, rake the leaves, look at setting up a garden. I mean, do I really want to spend the one day off a week I have like doing this for them? If I didn't have this going on, I would be all about that, right? And then we think about our schedule, and you think that every weekend we always plan to do something. Every moment we have to ourselves, we always plan to do something. So really, that stipulation is a way for us to say, we'll never do it. I can always think of something better to do. And we do. What happens if we actually treat it as an avoidance? Like the whole, you see them on the side of the road and you make sure not to look that direction. I see them in need in the parking lot and I make sure not to look in that direction. Or how about you let news stories about when people try to do good things and helpful things for people and then you read stories about how they were murdered horribly on the side of a road somewhere. And how rare and how often completely untrue those stories are. And how what all that does is plays into a fear that we have that if we try to help someone, we're going to be the ones hurt. And then we completely omit in our life the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And didn't for any moment think, but it's going to hurt. Well, what are they going to take from me? But he did it. Willingly. Then he goes on and he says, but this is how. This is what. But we're going to do it in truth and action. And I think you could almost read that truth in action. How do I know it's true? I know it's true because I see it work. How do I know this is love? Because of the way it looks. Look at him. When you see that person and you help them, you're literally in the midst of loving them. We're physical people. Let's not deny it. Let's say that the best part about how we know people love one another, especially how we know we are loved, is about what people often do for us and show us their love for us, right? The love I have for my wife is to learn how to pick up that towel. The love I have for my wife and my children is to spend time when I'm tired listening to them. The love I have for those I work with is that their petty concerns and problems are things that I'm willing to listen to. And sometimes I think it's foolish, but they still need an ear. They want to be heard. They're worth respect, right? There's a woman called Theresa who lived long ago, and her nickname was The Little Flower. And she had one thing that she was about, and that was doing small things, small things. And the reason why she did small things was she said that small things to love one another and to do small acts of kindness and love are always around you. They fill up your daily life. 
but big things. I've got to lay down my life. I've got to go wrestle a lion for this guy. I've got to go whatever you want to put in there. Those things come around rarely, if ever, sometimes. Think about it. We live in a country where you're probably never going to be asked to die for Christ. You probably won't be. Now, we can settle into fear that people think that's going to happen, but there's a lot of steps that have to happen for that. But the fact of the matter is, like our Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle East who constantly daily worry about it, what am I going to have to say when they ask me if I'm a Christian? And they have to say, oh, I am a Christian, and that literally means death to them. We probably won't live in that kind of fear living here. But what she says is the simple, small things of you could help that person with their trash out to the curb. You could say that kind word to that person you know is not a kind person. You could give five minutes of your time to listen to that annoying person that you wish you wouldn't have ever met. And not do so grudgingly or forcefully, like we're going to make them love us, but to do so as an act of service that, quite honestly, you'll never be able to brag about. That was her big point. You'll never be able to brag about these. When you pick up that piece of paper that someone drops, you'll never be able to brag about that. No one will let you say that that was a humongous act of service. It's not. But it's a little thing that adds up to huge things over time. You become a person who loves in the small things so well that the big things come and go, and you always love in those things. You want to know how people live a life of love? They do so by the small steps that you take every day to do it. And so ultimately, the truth in action. Can you imagine a world in which Jesus wasn't a nice guy, but yet he died on the cross for us anyways? Can you imagine what that would look like? A gospel that is literally filled with Jesus being selfish, just like we are, unloving, just like we are, and then somehow at the end he comes to the cross and he still does the right thing. And he still goes there for us. But the ultimate point of the cross is what? That God's love sent him there. He put himself there for us. How would he do that if he lived a life that was full of selfishness all the way through? That act of service would have meant nothing to us. Plenty of men and women died on a cross. But we don't worship any of them. We worship the one who died on a cross because of his love for us. It was perfected because of who he was. To love in the truth of Christ is to love in the small actions, just like the big actions, and without meaningless words. Remembering Christ called us to love with our entire lives. If you would, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, Lord Creator, Lord Sustainer, help us. Help us to be a people of love. Help us to be a people called to something deeper than just trying to fake it. But help us be a people who mean it through fellowship, through service, through simple acts, loving and caring and sacrificing for one another. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we ask for your blessings, your graces to fall upon us as we seek to be a people 
that are known for our love and known to be a people who love well with our entire lives. In Jesus Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.